0: And he, Jesus, shall wipe away every tear. In the meantime, the scriptures tell us poetically the truth that every tear that falls down the cheeks of his children is something that God collects and keeps in a bottle. You might say, for how long? Well, I believe that what he's saying is that no sorrow ever touches his children, but what it is remembered until that day when he disposes of that bottle of earth's sorrows and then wipes away any remaining tears in our eyes and welcomes us into his heaven eternally, joyfully to be with him. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a loving God. This week in the church office, we've been putting together, manufacturing, printing, and putting together what will be the most up-to-date latest fellowship directory. This is just the cover, but I brought it with me as a way of introducing or reintroducing the theme of our studies in First Peter chapter 3, last Lord's Day, we read together the love chapter, if you remember First Corinthians thirteen, and then began to address the most intimate of all relationships, next to our relationship to God Himself, the the relationship of marriage. And we had a word from God through Peter uh, concerning uh, what role wives have, especially in the lives of husbands that may be disobedient to the word or don't know the Lord. And I trust that was a helpful. study to you. Some of you didn't get my little joke there. Uh, Most of them are jokes that people don't get, which means they're not very funny, I guess. But I tell them anyway. Uh, When I indicated uh, last Lord's Day that uh, uh, that portion where Peter reminds us that Sarah, uh, after all, as an example, called Abraham Lord and how I would at certain stress points in my own marriage remind my wife of that text and I paused and then I said, do you want to know what her response was? And what she would say is, oh, for Pete's sake. Well, the Pete, of course, that I had in mind was St. Peter and what he had to say in chapter uh, 6. So uh, she doesn't quite call me Lord, but she does show me a great deal of respect and more than I deserve. And in that, she is obedient to Christ and putting up with me in many ways. She is obedient to Christ. She was in children's church taking a turn last Lord's Day, and I sincerely could have wished that she had been scheduled for this week because it's my duty and responsibility to address first uh, Peter chapter three and verse seven. And it's the husband's uh, turn in a sense to be on the uh, hot seat or at least be in the searchlight uh, of God's truth. But my wife is here, which will, of course, Make me honest, as I know how to be in the preaching of this text. But I mentioned the fellowship directory, and we'll have these available to you by next uh, Lord's Day put together, and you'll be able to be in touch with each other. It strikes me uh, that on the front cover we have a theme verse which is carried on our church stationery and on my own uh, calling card that I give out in the community. And it is Ephesians 4.15, the phrase that you find there that says, Speaking the truth in love. I love the balance of that. I I picture uh, a scale, don't you? On on the one side, uh, the necessity, the command to love. uh, And on the other side of the scale, like the little level that I handed out to you men uh, today, that somehow there's a balance so that uh, we are loving, but we are also assuming a responsibility to speak truth. Speaking the truth in love. On the back of the fellowship directory, and it's been on previous editions of this, you're going to find these words. And I'd like to actually begin uh, reading another portion of scripture before we come to our assigned text here at chapter three, at First Peter. These uh, uh, phrases and a few verses are lifted from the twelfth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. Just listen to them. Let them uh, set the tone. Of our hearts for what we will hear in the moments that follow. Love must be sincere. Hate. And that's, of course, the opposite of love, isn't it? Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Live in harmony with one another. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Beautiful expression, is it not, of what God desires for his children. That we be a people who care about truth, absolutely. But that we be speaking that truth to everyone in the tone, in the heart full of love. Love, clearly, according to Jesus, would be the foundation, the new ethic, or the standard for the kingdom over which he rules. I like the phrase, it's more than a bumper sticker. Let's pray that it would be more than that in our personal day-to-day lives. But I love the phrase, Jesus is Lord. Lord. That points to his absolute sovereign rule as well as his right to be bowed down to and obeyed in every way. And the king of this kingdom, which he has established, has been established in love. He has commanded his people to love one another, saying it's the one evidence that the world will have, that you really are my redeemed children. It will be measured by the degree to which you love with this kind of love. This love of which Jesus spoke and commands as our new ethic in all of our relationships, and as we'll see this morning particularly in a relationship as intimate as marriage, is a love that transcends, well, what I could call mere human love. I never like to suggest that human love is just mere love. Human love is one of the greatest of all the attributes that dwells in the hearts of even fallen people who are still outside of God's grace. Uh, Love of loved ones, the love of a mother... Uh, For her child, the love of a man for his uh, wife. These are admirable things. They are gifts from God, whether one be a believer or not. But I want to make clear that the love of which Jesus speaks as the new ethic, the standard, the principle upon all of our life and actions once we have come to Christ is agape love. That's the Greek word. It is A love that transcends that which can be known among the best of loves in mere human terms. In fact, I would say that fallen man who has come to Christ and become a new creature, that natural love has been itself transformed into something entirely different. Behold, all things have become new, even in terms of how we love. Uh, I know of several uh, folks. Uh, I know of some in our own congregation uh, where, uh, as a husband and wife, they have loved each other for many years. But then there was a coming to Christ, either on the part of one of the spouse or the other or both, and how they will testify that the love they had before Christ was truly a wonderful thing and a blessing from God. But somehow even that love has been exponentially Uh, transformed and become even something greater. There's a sense in which we become a Christian that our capacity for love or I should say maybe the nature of that love takes a 180 degree turn. And what I mean by that is that even our best loving apart from salvation is almost always to some extent defiled as everything is by our fallenness. So even the best of loves among unbelievers, if you look carefully, and if they could be honest, and they usually cannot be this honest, spiritually blind eyes do not see this, that we love best to the extent at which it seems we ourselves are being loved. In other words, it's a love that is uh, exists, it's a blessing, it's admirable, it helps the world get along. Uh, All we need now is a little more love. One of the pop singers said a few years ago, and that's true, but at its best, apart from Christ, the operation of God's gospel grace in a life, it's a love that's turned inward almost always. It's really a kind of selfish loving that takes place. In Christ, it takes a 180 degree degree. Rather than a love that's focused upon whether or not my needs are being met by someone I say I love or I may even act in love toward, I will act in love toward to the extent that I sense I'm getting that love in return. That's human love. But agape love, the love that comes with us being new creatures in Christ, takes that 180 degree. And what's unique about it, now we have the capacity to hear the command of Christ and not be crushed by it. Because now we have another dynamic and ability that was never there before when he says to us, I want you to love your enemies. How's that for a test? in the ethical teaching of Jesus. I don't want you to just love those people that love you in return. I want you to love everyone. I want you to love one another in such a way that it puts on display the love I had when I sent my son to hang on the cross for your sins. Now, I give all of that as a background to where we have been for a while In this ongoing study of first Peter, first Peter in the first two chapters, most of the first two chapters has dwelt upon the glory and the wonder, the astounding grace of God in Christ, that he has brought us out of a kingdom of darkness into his marvelous light, that he has redeemed us. And Peter says, not with silver and gold, but but with the precious blood of Christ. And that, that this is a sure thing and a secured thing. And that we have an inheritance waiting in heaven preserved. And that in the meantime, we can rejoice even in our hardships. And then comes, as we've moved through the text and now approach chapter 3, what are we would have to call the, the the ethical or the moral application of the fact that the gospel has been embraced by the grace of God given to us, that we are these new creations in Christ and it changes everything. But it does not change us right now in every way. We are not yet what we shall be. Right. Thank God I'm not what I was. But oh, thank God. I'm also headed in a new direction where ultimately when I see Christ and when you see Christ, the scripture says even greater transformation will take place, and we shall be like him. And that'll take heaven. That'll take seeing him for that final transformation. But in the meantime, there is a growth in grace and godliness, and therefore a growth in our ability to love more and more as Christ loved us when he laid down his life for us. We Who were his enemies? Isn't it interesting? Christ does not command his disciples to love their enemies without reminding them that that's exactly what we were to him, an enemy of God. While we were yet enemies, he laid down his life. What he did was submit to the cross. Now I've gotten to a key word. It's a long introduction, but I think an important one for us to hear. The will of Christ is that his people in this fallen world would love like no one else can love apart from that grace. But that this love has as its chief and perhaps most glorious best attribute is its ability to submit. Its ability to demonstrate a kind of meekness and humility toward everyone. For example, we were looking at uh, verse 13 back in chapter 2. He talks about civil authority. Let's just take a little review here. Come back uh, to verse 13 of chapter 2. He says, there's the word. Isn't the first time we hear the word is not wives submit to your husbands. That's what I want you to see. Or in the same way, you husbands, you have some submitting to do, as we'll see in just a moment. It's not a new theme that is somehow reserved just for marriage. It's been a continuing theme. As a result of the glorious grace of God saving your soul and mine, we are to love. And Jesus is teaching, and Peter is reminding us, it takes submitting. This is God's will. Loving God as the sovereign Lord will allow us to submit ourselves even to every human institution, even very imperfect ones. Verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. In that verse, you'll remember that we... Uh, Said that uh, we have a good description of what government should be, but government, of course, doesn't always do that. We're to act as free men in verse 16, but be reminded we really are the servants of God. So as a result, verse 17, we are to honor all people. We're to love the brotherhood, fear God, we're to honor the king. And then he goes on to uh, servants. In modern times like ours, we would be talking about applying this to Uh, Something as basic as being under the authority of of a boss or an employer. And so see how practical this is. But the issue again in loving everyone is being submissive under Christ to how he has organized his universe. Servants, verse 18 of chapter 2. Be submissive. There's the word again to your masters with all respect. Now look at this. Not only to those who are good and gentle if you were to fast forward to the issue of marriage again, we dismiss all those excuses that sometimes in weakness, even Christian women would offer when they say, but you don't know my husband. Well, perhaps a servant in Peter's day who's come to Christ would say, Peter, but you don't know. You don't know the master. That is the master, the slave owner. You don't know what my boss is like. But he says, not only are you to submit to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Pastor, I'm married to one of the least gentle, most unreasonable men in the universe, I think. And it must be tough to hear the pastor counselor come back with God's truth and say, yes, I sense that that's been the case and I see your burden. But at the end of our talk today, the command is for you still. To love your husband. You say, how? By obeying God in this matter. And you submit to one who is even unreasonable. Now, not uh, just doing that uh, because God commands it, but doing it because God chooses to work in ways that he can only work when we line up with his ways. That brings us then to where we were just one week ago. Chapter three and verse Uh, one in the same way, and of course, what I did skip over, uh, very important after uh, submitting to civil authorities and human institutions, submitting, submitting in the workplace um, and so forth. uh, We then are given the example of Christ submitting to such unjust, unreasonable treatment as he falls into the hands of evil men, doing the will of God, submitting to his father. And bearing our sins. And then Peter says, here I am now at verse 1, chapter 3. In the same way. In the same way of these others that have been instructed to submit in various environments. But most of all, in the same way that Christ submitted himself to his father in bearing the cross. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. But you see, there's a purpose and a reason which gives the wife the grace and ability to do this so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. As husbands observe your holy, chaste and respectful behavior and so forth. We're not going to re-preach verses one through six there. But all of that to say this is the context. This is the context of verse 7. And don't lose that context. You husbands. Verse 7. Here's where we are today. Notice the same phrase repeated. You husbands. What? In the same way. In the same way that you are called upon by your your Lord to submit to human government. In the same way a servant is to submit himself to his employer. In the same way that, that Christ submitted himself to the cross. In the same way you wives are to submit to the situation you have in the husband you have. And in the same way, husbands, there is a humbling required. You too must submit to God's will As to how you relate to the wife that you have married. Verse 7, you husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that. Each time there's been a so that there's been motivation for us. Uh, The woman's motivation was that as she submits so that God may do a work even of saving grace in her husband's life. Here, the husband submits so that his prayers why, his very relationship to God in no way would be hindered. So I want to try to underscore again, answer the question in case it's still in in our minds. Why is an active, willed, yet voluntary submission in life so crucial to our growth in godliness? What is really at work in the heart of God For his children that he would ask them to do these very difficult things like submit to one another. Well, I wonder if you would agree that the number one enemy of our souls in any pursuit of godliness, the number one enemy is our own pride. Our pride. It is the greatest hindrance. It is, we have met the enemy, and they are us. The big eye. And God understands that it is in the practice, developing the habit, the lifestyle of daily submission to God act in the ways that God commands, He knows that in that practice we find almost every day the opportunity to subdue and kill pride as it asserts itself in a multitude of ways. In other words, the antidote to this Chief or main spiritual problem that you and I have pursuing godliness is our pride and only an active and voluntary submission. Hearing what our Lord says we are to do in every situation. And time and again, you'll hear him say, submit and trust. Or we sometimes have sung through the years, have we not? Those of us that have been around for a while, trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Now, he says husbands, verse seven. Really, he's saying pride is your problem, too. And if you want your prayers answered then one of the best things a man can do who wants his prayers answered apparently is to study, observe, learn, get help, whatever it takes, study marriage. Get some understanding and some knowledge of what it means to live In this case, with a member of the opposite sex, who also happens to be your wife. You husbands, in the same way, there's the meekness required. Live with your wives in an understanding way. Understand that she is a woman and not another you. Men understand that she is a woman and not one of your buds, buddies. Professor Higgins had a problem with that as he sought to make a lady out of Eliza Doolittle, otherwise known to us, I guess, as Audrey Hepburn and... Rex Harrison, do you remember as Professor Higgins in the midst of trying to change Eliza Doolittle, more to his keeping and more to his standard of liking, out of frustration, addresses Colonel Pickering. And the lines of that marvelous musical play go something like this. Higgins says, why can a woman be more like a man and then he gives a whole lot of reasons why that would be a better thing and a little bit later on in the dialogue continuing with colonel pickering for example he says these things to colonel pickering why can't a woman take after a man men are so pleasant so easy to please whenever you're with them you're always at ease that is when you're with another man in terms of how men relate to other men And then he asked Pickering the question. Tell me, Pickering, would you be slighted if I didn't speak for hours? See? Another man would probably be glad that you shut up. But the woman, she has a problem with that. Professor Higgins, I'm not sure I should use this in church, but he says to Pickering, Would you be livid if I had a drink or two? Nonsense, says Colonel Pickering. And then Higgins said, well, would you be wounded if I never sent you flowers? Pickering says, oh, nonsense, never. But you see, the problem that uh, Professor Higgins has is not unlike the problem, well, that way too many of us men have. We spend too much time wishing our woman would somehow be more like a man. Or like us. Oh, and I said it would be hard to preach this message with my sermon, with my wife here in the midst of my sermon. But how many times, how many times has she had to forgive a statement like this? Because I've said it way too many times. Honey. You're just too sensitive And the Bible comes blasting back and says to me, fool, oh, it is not that she is too sensitive. It is that she is a woman. And that's how God made her. And man, you best humble yourself to recognize. Well, Peter says, You ought to live with them, understanding certain things. And then he says something that interpreted in our day, misinterpreted as a result of our day, where there is this statement. Peter says, and we know it's the truth of God. You're to live with your wife in an understanding way as with someone. What does it say there? Weaker. And we go, oh, the women go. It's just like. When when there's this this influence of radical feminism in our culture and they come to a verse like we saw last week, wives are supposed to be submissive, not me. I am woman. These boots were made for walking, uh, whatever the case may be. Some of you know that uh, that popular way of expressing it. Well, what what does Peter mean that that she's inferior to him, that He would say she's a weaker vessel. No, I've already given you one illustration of the meaning. She's a whole lot more feeling than you are, man. She's a whole lot more sensitive. That's not a fault for which you have a right to criticize her. No, if you're going to live with her, you're going to live that she perceives the same world you're in in an entirely, sometimes a radically different way. It's taking me a long time now, more than 20 years of marriage to get smart enough to say sometimes, well, honey, what do you think? How do you see this? And she will wisely sometimes, knowing that she's going to contradict some of the way that I already have decided I see things. And she will say, you mean as a woman? How wise is that? She's. She's getting me ready. She's actually helping me not respond out of my masculinity, but to receive the femininity with which God has made her in order that she may be, according to creation design, a help to me that is fitting. I need my wife's point of view. Congregation, you don't know how many evils you have been spared at the hands of your bumbling pastor because I dared to listen to my wife. She is the weaker vessel, not morally weaker. In fact, often called the saint. Not necessarily spiritually weaker, all that God has in his grace for her as a believer is no different than all he has for a man who is a believer. Not intellectually. In fact, it's, this is really tough to have to confess. We men probably won't do it openly. But in so many ways, she's so much smarter than we are. Which is why a woman in frustration is often heard to say, you just don't get it. And guess what? It's because we don't. So it cannot be an intellectual inferiority that we're to live with her as a weaker vessel. And at this point, I'd like to give an object lesson to help it stick in our minds. But when I do this in preaching, I give object lessons without objects. If I was doing some premarital counseling, which by the way I'm scheduled to do uh, in the next. Well, this Friday, I have a, a premarital counseling session with a couple uh, that are facing uh, holy matrimony. And I'll probably pull out the objects. I will deal with this principle of marriage, if not in the first session, certainly before we're all done and make a pronouncement of husband and wife. I, they need to know these things. Uh, the objects that I might pull out of my desk drawers, I've done in the past in those settings, are 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 two vessels. I pull out of the drawer and hold up to the sparkling light a very fine, beautiful piece of crystal. A crystal goblet. For you Baptists, I dare not say a wine glass. I know that. And, and, but, but I have this crystal goblet. Fine, thin crystal at the top. Beautiful stem. And I put it on the desk. And we'd live with a passage like this. And I'll say, you know what Peter is saying? He's saying, and I reach down in the drawer again and I bring out the next object and I clunk it down on the desk, which I would have never done with that crystal object, uh, that crystal goblet. Now, let's see. Uh, I could say beer mug, but mason jar would be more acceptable again to an audience like this. But you get the picture. Which is the weaker vessel? What's likely to happen when, when these two objects collide? There's the beautiful, fragile, sensitive, made and fashioned that way by God. She is called woman. And here's this guy with his beer mug mentality. No problem when he's hanging out with a guy's. But it sure could be a problem. Which vessel do you think is weaker? Not in any way inferior. In fact, we would say far more beautiful than a mason jar. And yet live with her, Peter says, as one who is the weaker, the sensitive, the fragile in her emotional makeup, All that you need. In fact, men, if you think about it, these are the things that make women attractive to us. It is their very femininity. Is it not the fact that they are tender? Is it not the fact that they so readily can weep? They are tender hearted. They are sensitive in heart. And let that be a reminder that the very things that you find attractive in her, that make her somewhat vulnerable in this world, so that you want to protect her, these are reminders to you that in a similar way, those are the ways that she is to be treated. And there's only one verse for men, there were six for women. But how important is it, men? He says, you don't want your prayers hindered. I can tell you from personal testimony that the hardest time I ever have from time to time in my pursuing a consistent walk with the Lord and an ability to carry out my responsibility for ministry to a flock the necessity that I sense of having to pray and depend on the Lord, or to sit down with my open Bible to take the next assigned verse apart and study it and prepare to deliver it to God's people, I have learned I cannot even begin that work. If something's unresolved, some conflict arose, some attitude that has distanced me from my precious Diane and she from me. She could testify. I'm thankful it's not too often, but she could testify. There were times I went to work, sat down behind my desk, opened my Bible, and five minutes later, had to get up, go back to the car, drive home, take her hands, Put her in my arms, humble myself and say, I'm sorry. Then I could go back to being all the other things that I know God has called me to be. Men, if you don't want your prayers hindered, Peter says. uh, Men, if you want to walk with God, you cannot avoid living with your wife, the creature that God made her to be and the way he made her to be. That you find a way to live in an understanding way. For Diane and I, by way of personal testimony again, and I close with this, our time is gone. I don't know where we'd be, honey. I really don't without the gospel of grace at work in our marriage all these years. Because I don't do it so well. There's times when she slips a bit, too. And so even after our best efforts, even after we've sought with diligence to apply all the biblical principles, I can't tell you how grateful I am. And I know Diane would say the same, that we have a gospel of grace operating in our day to day lives. And we know that when we ask forgiveness, just like from the Lord himself, we're going to get that from each other.